Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on The Shorter Catechism where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Parker. I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Happy interview day, everybody. Today on the podcast, we have uh, with us uh, a friend of Tommy Parks. He is a former RUF campus minister, uh, now pastor, Pastor Brian Habig of Downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Pastor uh, Habig, remind us where you were, RUF campus minister? First at Mississippi State, and that's my alma mater. I was there six years, and then Vanderbilt for four, and we moved from Nashville to where I am now. So you're a fan of the cowbell? Uh, In outdoor spaces, possibly. So there will not be a cowbell? on the podcast today. You are. I can, yeah, I can, I can confirm that statement. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, but I do agree with Bruce Dickinson. The world needs more cowbell. Mm. So mm. maybe, maybe on another episode. Um, but in addition to being a pastor, uh, Brian is the co-author with Les Newsom, another guest we've had on the podcast of a great little book, called The Enduring Community, which I would highly recommend for the day in which we live. Uh, no community is more needful right now than the Christian church. So uh, run out and get that copy if you think of it. So Pastor Habig, uh, normally Tommy does the get to know you questions, but he already knows you. So I'm going to ask these, typically what we ask of our guests. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I gave a little bit about your background, but tell us about how you came to know the Lord, how you have a lovely family role at the church there. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi and, uh, grew up there. I was in Jackson until I left for college to go to Mississippi state. And, uh, yeah, I, my, um, I, both my church and my school from kindergarten through eighth grade was first Presbyterian church in Jackson. And, uh, in fact, I even lived pretty, close to it um so that you know that that's a that's been a formative space for me i guess i, I was thinking about that i actually talked with somebody about that this week who, who grew up there it's one of the only people i know and she's one of the only people i know in jackson that grew up uh, in, in greenville that grew up in jackson and she said i think i was there seven days a week and i thought about it and i said well i wasn't seven but i was six i think that's why the hallways there still come up in my dreams sometimes but uh grew up there and yeah, I, I I grew up under good teaching, and I, I had good teachers that loved me and invested in me, and um, my parents had us at church and all those good things. But the lights didn't come on for me till about tenth grade, and and I really don't know the exact date, but uh, I just, whatever Jesus means by he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I I got my ears, I think, fall of tenth grade. So my um. My youth group was very impactful there at First Pres, and then I went on to Mississippi State, and RUF was very impactful. I knew of it, but but really got very involved in that, and uh, and that really had a big part in my life even going forward because my first job after college was working on staff with RUF as an intern at Vanderbilt. I was the first RUF intern at Vanderbilt, and that ended up being sort of a testing time for two years as I was thinking about seminary. And I went on to seminary at Covenant in St. Louis for three years. And my, my dream job was to work 
as a campus minister when I got out, but the, it was, it was such a smaller ministry then. And it just seemed like there was less turnover back then. I don't know if that's accurate or not. It just seemed that way. But when I got out, there was a, a job saved for me at Mississippi state back at my alma mater. So that was my first job then as a seminary graduate. I married the year before I finished seminary. So I married Dana and uh, she's also from Mississippi, Newton, Mississippi. Uh, she grew up Southern Baptist, but she's a really awesome Presbyterian. And um, yeah, and I left out, you know, growing up in Jackson, I've uh, got one older brother. He's my only sibling, Brent. And uh, he's really my only direct family that's still in Mississippi. Uh, that's a little snapshot. So I was a campus minister for 10 years, moved here to Greenville, South Carolina in 05. So just coming up on 16 years. It's a long time to be in the same church. They must like you very much. They're very patient and merciful. Long suffering. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah there, there's the word. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. They're long suffering. <laughs> well, um, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know me, I, uh, went to Greenville Seminary. So I know your uh, church was right down the road and I know y'all have been there a long time, uh, faithfully serving the Lord. So let's talk about this. So you, you kind of maybe already answered the question. You grew up at First Pres Jackson. So mm-hmm. uh, did they hand you a catechism, you know, in the delivery <laughs> room? Was that how it works there? No, it, but it is interesting that 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 is a church where you bump into the catechism. I mean, there are PCA churches where the leaders have been trained in that and hopefully know, you know, know the contents, but, uh, but, but the members might not really have any meaningful contact with it. But first Pres Jackson, when I grew up, you would, you know, the catechism was around. So first you would learn the children's catechism and that used to, it used to have this very distinctive pink cover, little paper booklet. So I remember those being everywhere. Um, and I was trying to remember when I really started engaging the shorter catechism and I can't remember. I think it was first at First Pres. And then I pushed more deeply into that during that RUF internship because a big component of the internship is a study program. And really the major meat and potatoes of the theology doctrine portion is to study the confession. So as I, uh, I, I went through the G.I. Williamson study guide of the Westminster Confession, some of your listeners might know about that. But I, I was also interacting with the catechism and you know, getting more familiar with some of the answers. And then and I'm sure several of your guests have said this. Les Newsom said this. I listened to that interview that as he was wrapping up seminary and he's preparing for, you know, an ordination exams that he. Well, I know at RTS Jackson, they had to learn that we were not required to at Covenant, but it was used in preparing for ordination. So uh, that took me further than I'd ever been at that point. But yeah, grew up around the catechism. And and that's one of those things that like when the lights came on, it was great that, uh, I mean, first and foremost through biblical instruction, but also through catechizing that, uh, I heard somebody put it this way, Jason, I owe this to Jason Sterling. He was a an RUF minister at Ole Miss and he's at Faith Presbyterian PCA in Birmingham. But uh, he said that he's told his kids that he taught them the catechism so that one day when the lights come on, there'll be some furniture in the room. And I, I kind of felt like that happened to me that not that I knew everything, but when the lights came on, there was just already some good stuff there that, that now took on a new, new look. Didn't David Strain say something like that, Tommy, where he knew someone in his church or a family member who had been catechized, grew up, hated it, walked away, 
but then when they came to, they had a pretty full body of theology to kind of catch them, you know, uh, so that's, that's a pretty cool, but that sounds somewhat parallel to your experience. Yeah. Uh, By the way, Stephen, since you're a Greenville Seminary grad, that's correct. You went, you, you're in Alabama. Uh, Vegas. I, you know, I sometimes forget this is the case, but I'm really Presbyterian, humanly speaking, because of my mom. She grew up in Alabama. She grew up Methodist. My dad grew up kind of nominal Southern Baptist, but mom grew up Methodist, but got a scholarship to Belhaven. It, it was Belhaven College. Now it's Belhaven University, but it's just that and First Pres Jackson are very close to each other. So that's what moved her to Jackson and really how our family started in Jackson. But my mom, this is funny. My mom had Morton Smith before Joey Piper had Morton Smith. Whoa. Yeah. I have a and for those of you listening who have no idea who these names are, Joey Piper until just recently was the founder and president of a Greenville Seminary. He just handed over the, the, the reins to Jonathan Master. But, uh, but yeah. My mom had Morton Smith before Joey Piper had. In fact, I was looking through some old books of mine, and I have my mom's signed copy of Studies in Southern Presbyterian Theology by Morton Smith from like the 60s. It is on my shelf right now. Not signed, sadly, but you'd appreciate this. I had a buddy, fellow Greenville grad. Somehow, he wrestled up a high school photo of one Joey Pipa before he looked like the Lorax of the PCA with that glorious mustache, right? And I was just like, that's like a Presbyterian trading card. It's like, <laughs> you know, Joey Pipa without his mustache. So it was, uh, it, it is funny. Again, clearly y'all, uh, those listening in, the PCA is uh, a lot of interconnectedness. A lot of our stories overlap and it's pretty cool to see that. So, but man, I'll have to pass that along that, uh, this is your mother-in-law? Uh, this is my mom, yeah. Your mom. She yeah. might be more reformed than Joey Piper because she was with Morton Smith first. So uh, very cool. Uh, so last but not least, favorite shorter catechism question. Do you have one? Do you not have one? Are you going to plead the fifth? Man, I, you know, I'm, I've, I've only listened to a couple of episodes, but I know that justification, that's a, that's a fave. Of course, I love that one. I'm, and I'm, I bet that'll come up later as we talk. But one that means a lot to me, and it, it's going to sound like such a downer, but there's a reason. It's uh, number 19, and it's asking about the, you know, the, miser- the misery of the estate that humanity fell into after the fall. And it says that all mankind by their fall lost communion with God or under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. And even though that's so weighty and so um, sad, heartbreaking, uh, to me, it's been helpful because when I stand up in front of people, there's this there's this great, you might say, binary thing on my insides that I'm trying to convey is that there's bad news and then there's good news. And the bad news is already true. The good news is for us, but it's not a foregone conclusion that everyone in front of me has believed that good news. And so some of getting to where you see why the good news is such great news, that it's the best news ever, is you've got to have a robust understanding of the bad news. And the bad news really gets truncated sometimes. I mean, I, and I, I know the temptation, and I'm sure I've at points done it more than I realized, where you sort of make it out like the big problem 
is that, you know, we don't make the best choices and, uh, you know, we really, we, we sabotage ourselves spiritually and we don't really get to all the life that we could. And in a way, all, all of those are true, but that like, that's not a full picture of the objective bad news, whether you subjectively experience it or not. Objectively, that's the bad news is lost communion with God under his wrath and curse. So made liable to all those other things. And I don't necessarily quote that all the time from up front, but it's in me when I'm and not just preaching. I mean, when I'm when I'm just talking to somebody one on one or doing a member meeting like, I, you know, I had a meeting yesterday with a young woman about joining our church. And I asked her that and I wasn't looking for any jargon. I wasn't looking for catechism language, but I asked her just what's your understanding in your words of what's the bad news and the good news. I mean, she had used, she had heard me use those categories that, that didn't just blindside her, but what, what is the bad news? And I just, I didn't want her to just say, well, that, you know, we just really don't know what we're doing spiritually. And again, that would be true, but I, I want her to know something more robust than that. I will say this, I, the tie would be with, uh, I think at 37 about, you know, what happens to believers when they die. The souls, the souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies being still united to Christ, do, re, uh, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And we, uh, I mean, I always, I always need that, but we, we buried a 12-year-old in our church last year, and it was just, it was just a doozy. And I needed that one in my pocket. And I, I even I did quote that one to several people to say, we, we've got to hang on to that. Well, thanks, uh, Brian. Well, today we're going to look at questions 88 through 90 of the Shorter Catechism that kind of focus on discussing the Bible uh, and kind of this whole idea of the Bible being a means of grace. So first, uh, how would you quickly define a means, a means of grace? Uh, it's a pretty churchy word. Uh, I think mm-hmm. in Presbyterianism, we throw it around quite a bit, um, but maybe somebody who's not grew up Presbyterian or had Morton Smith back in, <laughs> um, how would, you know, how would you kind of help somebody understand that concept? By the way, we didn't even cover how my mom once had lunch with Martin Lloyd-Jones, but but we'll, we'll, we'll press ahead. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, now it's interesting. The means of grace is a little bit jargony. Uh, it's not, you know, the catechism speaks in terms of outward and ordinary means of the benefits of redemption. And that, that really is a mouthful. So means of grace is definitely more memorable and portable. But I would just say, OK, just just break it down and think about what is grace. Grace is undeserved, unearned favor from God, not just from a neutral starting place, but in the face of demerit and deserving condemnation non-approval, non-favor. So that's what grace is. And grace only comes from God. But God has set up the world and set up our redemption and even the life of his people in covenant with him where he works through these means. When you say it's the means of grace, that's, I mean, it can be best case scenario. It can be a helpful way to say the grace is not coming from the doing of the action or from an object. The grace does not is not emitted from the physical object called the Bible or from the act of preaching. Because you think about it, uh, 
and I, I have been asking this since I've been a preacher and teacher. You know, I've asked RUF groups this. I've asked my congregation this because it's so, I think, illustrative. With whom did Jesus use his harshest words, his most severe words? Was it with drunks? Was it with prostitutes? Pretty easy to demonstrate it was with Pharisees. And the Pharisees were doing these actions, you know, that we call the means of grace. They were searching the scriptures. He said they were searching the scriptures. They were praying. They were in in worship. So the, the grace doesn't originate with the object or the action. Grace has to come from God. But he works through these means like the word and prayer and uh, the sacraments and, you know, on and on. So uh, I I, I think, and you know, I'll say this too, Tommy. It's funny. I had a conversation with a church member about this today or a married couple, actually, two church members that when you talk about means, you also need to talk about end. And when you talk about the means of grace, it may not be the perfect way to express it, but it's actually a helpful way to remember what is the end game? So like, should you read your Bible and should you listen attentively to preaching and prepare your heart beforehand to have a better marriage or unto having great kids or unto experiencing more joy? You know, all those things might happen, but the end is God. You know, he's not a means to something else. So we read the word, we listen and, you know, heed the preaching of the word of God. We pray. We're in public and private worship. We take the Lord's Supper to know God and to commune with him and to be close to him as he reveals himself to us. So why? So Catechism question 89 gives us impression. It talks about the Bible um, and it gives us a pressure that preaching is maybe in some sense more important than just simply Bible reading. Uh, it mm-hmm. says this, that the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word. Um, so why does the catechism do that? Why does it highlight preaching uh, maybe a little b- above individual Bible reading or does it even do that? Maybe because it was written by preachers. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's not the reason. No, no. Well, I think that, that I mean, even in the, uh, I mean, this was, I think this was part of their historic context as part of our context too, is that there is such a thing as excellent reading of the word. And some people read it very responsibly and humbly and they build on prior reading and prior teaching. And so they read it well and have great benefit from it. And that's, I mean, that's, that's what we want to see. But you can read it poorly and you can read into it and try to get it to say things that it's not saying. And anybody who's been a part of a not great small group has had a front row seat to this. And somebody reading the same words that you're reading saying, you know, what what I'm seeing in this or what I get out of this. And they may actually assert something that's contradictory to what it said or what, you know, other scriptures to say. So I, I, I don't take that question as diminishing the value of good reading and that it can happen. I mean, it commends it. But you even think about the example of Jesus. I mean, this is so obvious. It's kind of hiding in plain sight. He would he could have stood up in front of crowds in whether it's Galilean villages or at the temple and just verbalize scripture. I mean, he knew it well enough to do that. 
but he would teach and preach. He would explain it and apply it. And that's not to say that the reciting of scripture is not valuable and that we, and that we shouldn't have it in our heart enough to be able to do that, but that there is in God's economy, something special about a trained person explaining and applying the word of God and not just, just reading it out loud. Uh, we need trained explainers and appliers. Uh, I, I, I'll share this with y'all. I'm, you know, file this under book I should have read by now, but I'm just now reading. I'm just now reading Arnold Dalimore's biography of George Whitfield. So two volume, you know, not short books. And I'm almost through with volume one. I, I cannot say enough good things about it. I'm hijacking every other conversation I'm having right now to refer to something about George Whitfield. But one of the things that I read about him, you know, somebody commenting on what his preaching was like, was that his explanations were so accessible. I mean, he would preach to, you know, he's famous for just his voice carrying so far, so, so many thousands of people could hear him. But they're just these eyewitness accounts of him, whether, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, preaching somewhere outside and the richest carriages, the, the, the most ornate buggies in the, in the city are pulling up, the wealthiest citizens, as well as what we would call blue collar workers and even servants and slaves. And they could all track with him. So he's explaining the scriptures, doing so responsibly as somebody who's fed on them deeply. But he was also, besides being accessible and comprehensible, he just was famous for he could apply it to your heart. He could make you feel the urgency of the bad news. And just, well, I shouldn't say make you feel. The Holy Spirit used him to make you feel the greatness of the good news. Like, this is so good, it'll break your heart. Uh, it, it takes trained people to do that. He's, now, he's very, he was an outlier of trained people. But, but one of the, the things that I didn't know about him is that when he's a fairly new Christian, something he would do in private for hours and hours and hours is uh, he would read the scripture and read a Matthew Henry commentary on that scripture and then turn what he was learning into prayer. Man, that's formative, you know, and man, most people aren't doing that. So when he stood up in front of thousands of people, he had that in him and proclaimed. So how should we balance? And you were kind of getting into this, but how should we balance just individual Bible reading and preaching uh, as we're a part of a Christian community? Well, I think just to see it as a both and part of growth, not an either or. They don't need to be pitted against each other. Uh, yeah, I do want to be careful to remember that for three fourths of church history, we didn't have printing presses and it was, you know, it would have been the only the wealthiest people for a lot of that. They could have an individual copy of scripture. So I'm a little nervous when somebody says, hey, you can't love Jesus if you're not reading the Bible every day, because, you know, a lot of Christians wouldn't have been able to do that. And some still can't. But but if you do have access to it in your language, then it, it makes a lot of sense to read it broadly. Uh, I, my little pet theory, I don't know if I should go public with this on a podcast, but y'all seem friendly and inviting. So I, my, my, my little theory is that I think scripture almost operates like food where, you know, we talk about macros and micros, you know, your macros of protein or carbs or whatever. 
and then micros are like these micronutrients like I don't know magnesium selenium and I've wondered if you know it's not it's not hard to figure out what the macros would probably be it's like the gospel of John you know, or the gospel of Mark but I, I I wonder if the way God has set things up that you know Jude and Nahum and Haggai or in some ways are like the equivalent of magnesium and selenium. You, you, you need those two and you, and you could go a long time without hearing that preached from up front, but if you can get it, you need to get it. Um, I know one of the biggest barriers to read broadly is just you're bumping into so much stuff you don't know. And it's just, and, and you feel behind as soon as you start. The, the, um, because I've grown up with the Bible and just been building and building and building on that, I guess a, a more recent experience, this would be around the time my son Henry was born, that helps me empathize for people in that situation is the first time I read Lord of the Rings. You know, I'd heard about it. Uh, there were no movies yet. But when I started reading it, it was it was the feeling of this is incredible. And I feel like I'm drinking out of a fire hydrant. And how will I ever remember all these names and places and details and all that kind of stuff? Well, you can't. So you just power through and you get what you can. And it's waiting on you the next time and you build on that. And I I just would say to anybody, start reading through the entirety of God's word. That's not to diminish the unique role of someone preaching the word to you in public worship. But if you have this gift of the scriptures in your language, you need to work through the whole of it. And, and, and all things being equal, the Old Testament part, which is, you know, way over half of it, almost more like three fourths of it, is going to be the most intimidating part. And you won't feel like you have your legs under you. Keep going. Maybe you can have something like a study Bible off to the side and you can read about this new book you've never read through. Like if you do read through Nahum, what is that about? But just read through it and just keep doing that for the rest of your life. So I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. Well, so Christians. Hey, let me ask you this time. Did, yeah. did that answer your question? I mean, yeah. the, of the balance. Uh, I know that's easier said than done, but I, 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 you know, I'm torn here because on the one hand, there have been massive portions of church history where the preached word was that was the scripture you could get. I mean, that was the scripture you could know unless maybe there was you're in a town and there's a chained Bible <laughs> to the to the pulpit that they would let you go read. But um, but man, I, uh, I, I'll just say this. There, I, I can sometimes spot or it's almost like smelling an aroma. I can I can pick up on a whiff of somebody that isn't learning anything from the word directly, everything they're getting is secondhand. Mm-hmm. And it, it can even just kind of start to look like you're, you're living off borrowed capital and you're not in this direct contact with the scriptures. And even if all you have is preaching, you, you can hide some part of that in your heart and, and interact with it directly. Even if you were illiterate, you can do that. And all of us need that. But if you've got all the scriptures in your language, then you've got a treasure. Yeah, no, I mean, you got the old Martin Luther quote, you know, where he talked about, you know, why I sat around and did nothing and drank beer with my friends. You know, the word of God did everything. Well, I mean, 
and your point. Typical that, RUF minister, Tommy. Typical yeah, I know. RUF. I, well, yes. He didn't have the beer while he was preaching. Just so, no, yeah. But so next question, it kind of flips what you're kind of bringing out, you know, because, you know, for majority of church history, we had a preacher in a small town given the word. Now we have the ability to listen to any preacher in the world. And now with COVID almost watch any preacher in the world. Yeah. Um, and often, you know, I think in our PCA reform circles, you know, the question always pops up, who are you listening to? Uh, and so how does an average Christian think about preaching versus how we should think about preaching? I mean, this is anecdotal. I, I don't have research to prove it, but I, and I can't speak for other cultures. I would say, Probably for most American culture, I think especially white American culture, the, the posture that we're coming with, and I mean for people that love the Lord and you know want to grow and all that, I think we probably instinctively come in a posture of this is a talk which I will assess rather than um, this is a special moment for which I need to pray. I know it's very binary, but I think that's probably pretty true. Um, that you know, kind of like this is a talk. I'm so I'm sort of up over it. I'm assessing it. If it's interesting enough, if I like the tone, the illustrations, the person, the length, the applications, I'll sort of let it in more. If not, I'll hold it at arm's length and assess it, critique it. And believe me, I've, I have done as much yucky critique and assessment as, as anybody of other people. But I, I don't think we instinctively humble ourselves and say, I don't know, it may be a humdinger. It may be so boring, but someone has been, we hope, meditating in, on and studying and praying over this text. And really for me, I, hopefully they've been praying for who's going to be in front of them tomorrow. I mean, I'm saying this from the vantage point of I'm going into, you know, hear a sermon from somebody else. And I, I need to pray that God would use it and pray for the person preaching. And then I need to listen carefully. And then pray on the other side of it. You know, Lord, don't let me hold that at arm's length. But I need to feed on your word and, and I need to heed your word. And I, and I need to humble myself that I might be exalted. It's a question of. Who's assessing who? Am I assessing the word or is the word and God through the Holy Spirit kind of assessing me and revealing to me the hidden faults? I can't remember. I think that's in the confession. Um, yeah, a hero of mine is he's, he's not a household name, but he was a German New Testament scholar named Adolf Schlatter. He died in the 19, late 1930s, right before. World War II, but he could he could really see the storm clouds gathering and the rise of Hitler. Uh, he shared a first name with him, but it's Adolf Schlatter. Really amazing guy, and and what what we would call a brilliant, brilliant Bible believing Christian in the absolute epicenter of German higher criticism. Like most of his pro professorial life was at Tübingen, which was ground zero, and. Uh, but when he was a younger man and he was being, I think when he was being what we would call checked out for ordination, uh, it was either that or to be hired as a, as a new you know, fledgling teacher. 
but he was asked by this panel, do you stand upon the word of God? And he said, no, I stand under the word of God. And that has stuck with me. The, the visual of that is that I'm not standing on it. I know what, the, I know what that language means, but I am under it and it, it speaks down to me. That's a good image. So the preaching of the word, there's something unique that we get in it that we don't necessarily get from personal Bible reading and study. And that's not to deny that there is much to be gained through a Christian, through prayer, searching the scriptures and communing with the Lord therein. But even the preaching, we would say, is not automatically efficacious. The Spirit maketh the preaching an especially effective means. But the Shorter Catechism does say that we bring something to the table in the sense that we are to listen in such a way that it becomes efficacious. So could you describe for us, based on the Shorter Catechism, what that looks like? What does the preparation for the preaching of the Word look like? Because a lot of the things you mentioned are internal, and mm-hmm. then those are all important, but you know, internally and externally, how do we listen to the Word and the preached Word that it might become efficacious? Yeah. Uh, Dan Doriani was one of your guests, wasn't he? Okay. He was one of my professors at Covenant. And as you're asking that question, it makes me think of one time in class, he was taking questions and uh, another student said, Dr. Doriani, what do you recommend for family worship? And and I didn't have a family of my own at that point. You know, I, I wasn't married yet, but several of the guys were, and some had kids. He said, what do you recommend for family worship? And Doriani thought for a second and he said, just do something. If you just did something, you would be like in the 99th percentile, you know, whether, whatever, there's no magical ratio of read the Bible together, pray together, sing together, talk about something you learned. If you just did something, you would be in the 99th percentile. And now I know he could give a more you know nuanced answer than that, but that really stayed with me of a, rather than go for this just sort of perfect, uh, you know, roadmap, start doing something. I would apply that to your question to say, all right, I can think of some ideal things to get you ready to hear the preached word of God and it, everything from physically get enough sleep the night beforehand, you know, and like eat something where you're not hungry and preoccupied with your stomach beforehand. But maybe more importantly, cry out to God and ask like the things we just talked about, bless the one preaching, bless us as we hear Help us not to hold it at arm's length. But if you just did something, that would be encouraging. So I'm tempted to give you like a really cool six point, you know, roadmap of what to do to really benefit from the preached word of God. Just if you can remember that's coming and do something to get ready in body and soul, do that. It's a good word. And like you said, I think that a lot of us kind of fall into the Lord's day mm-hmm. and we kind of collapse at the end of a long week. And indeed it's a day of rest, but you know, even knowing that it's coming, thinking about Sunday on Saturday could mm-hmm. be a really helpful start praying, you know, Lord prepare me and prepare my family for that. You know, prepare my yes. kids to hear the word. Cause I want them to really lay hold of the gospel. I, I didn't think about this till just now, but, I'll throw out one particular, and it may be timely because we're going to look up and a lot of people are, are on vacation. 
But I made this application one time on a Sunday, and I had so many people say, man, I thought about that, or, or, or like, or we, we actually implemented that. And I can't remember if it was in my notes or I just did it in the moment, but I said, hey, here's a thought. What if in your vacation, instead of just going to the edge where you roll back in on Sunday late afternoon and you unpack and then you start Monday and you feel like you've been hit by a car, what if you did this? What if you ended your vacation week on Saturday afternoon and then wake up Sunday morning and feel like you've been hit by a car? And then drink coffee and come to worship anyway and hear God's word and be with God's people and then rest that afternoon and then go to work Monday. Now, again, that it, that that doesn't I know I put them, you know, feeling like they've been hit by a car right before they hit the before they hear the sermon. So this may not be a great answer, but it was just a way to say, will you think about the rhythms of your life so that your body and soul rest the way they need to, and you don't neglect the means of grace, uh, the outward means of grace. So I don't know, not, not a perfect answer, but I just, I, I, I didn't think about it till just this minute. It's off the cuff. And that was off the cuff uh, in your sermon. And you said, Hey, landed with people. So I think it'll land with, with folks here too. Cause how often do we, you know, kind of come in running on fumes or, you know, we, we jump into a new week absolutely empty because, you know, we, uh, we talked about the Sabbath here on the podcast is just, we I think it was Sean Michael Lucas talked about just, it's like those nights when you can't get sleep and you're tossing and turning in bed and you wake up more tired for having you know, slept that way. Yeah. Um, what if out of the rest of the Sabbath day, we went into our new week? That's a good, that's a good one. So resources for Bible reading, uh, or, even not, even not just Bible reading, but uh, theology of preaching, how people in the pews can feel like, all right, I'm, I feel prepared or I feel like I understand preaching now and how I can benefit therefrom. So any recommendations, book or uh, sermons, anything of that nature? Well, I think for the person who's newish to the Bible and feels really behind, and I, and I have conversations with people that, that feel that. Uh, and they're looking around at other people, maybe in their community group or Sunday school class or whatever their church does. And man, they know the Bible and they know how to answer questions and they can cite stuff. And this person feels like such a, they just feel like they'll never catch up. I think one resource I would recommend is, uh, uh, it's by Catherine Voss, V-O-S. And I want to say that used to be put out I think it used to be put out by Erdman's. I think Banner of Truth has it now, but it's the Child's Story Bible. And it is a, it, it's her summarizing and distilling and maybe in some point simplifying big tracts of Scripture. I think for somebody new to it, that could really help them, especially with the Old Testament. But then I would want to also say, going back to my you know, Lord of the Rings example, is just go ahead and jump in the pool. Don't start with Revelation. Don't start with Jeremiah. I would say start with the gospel, maybe Mark, maybe John, but but get started. Oh, there it is. Okay. Did I have it right? Child story, Bible? Yeah, Catherine Boss. That's right. You know, I got that idea. I've got to give credit where credit's due. I got that idea from Paige Brown. Um, this when she was Paige Benton. We sat by each other in Greek for a year. She missed like one. 
I missed more than one. But she uh, she was on staff for years with RUF at Vanderbilt and just worked with so many girls who were not coming from a church background, did not have biblical literacy. And she recommended that a lot. I think her, her mom and dad had you know used that with her, her siblings. And I just thought, man, I never would have thought of that. That's really great. So it's a bigger, more substantive book than like the Jesus Storybook Bible. But it's a little bit more accessible than reading, you know. Leviticus the first time. So, uh, yeah, but I would say after, you know, to, to, to get in the scriptures soon, I wouldn't say read Catherine Voss, then read the Bible. I'd say read Catherine Voss, but start reading the Bible and um, get on a plan if you can. Maybe read through your first book and then maybe get on something like McShane's reading plan. Uh, I don't do McShane. I do something. It's just kind of my own adaptation of something like that. But try to get through the Bible in you know, at least a year and a half. Uh, and you were asking about like even resources for, so were you asking about resources I would recommend to preachers of the word? Oh, resources um, of people who are going to listen to preaching. People that are listening to preaching. Cause I think that, you know, everyone here, here on, you know, we, we have a theology of preaching, you know, uh, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God and how will they believe without a person preaching to them. But how do we take what we know? or what we really believe and believe pretty strongly and communicate that to the people in the pew? Well, uh, I mean, if we're talking about resources for the people sitting in the pew, besides recommending the shorter podcast on a regular basis, I would say if, if it's somebody who likes to read, reading biographies of times when God really worked, in these singular ways and how preaching was used in that. And you got to be careful because you don't want to say like, now this is from this golden age that we're trying to get back to, you know, cause that that's, that's artificial. But some people don't know that these things happened, you know, that like someone could preach and the whole room full of people be cut to the heart, that that's not just something that happened in the apostolic period. This happened, like maybe it happened in our state. So I've already brought up George Whitfield. I'm going to hijack and do it again. You know, like I just got through reading a part where, in fact, there were several parts like this of what of these responses of people in Charleston. I mean, that's that's three and a half hours down the road from me. This is that's our. It was a colony then, but that that's our state. Uh, to, for people to hear that, and it's not just the 1700s or 1800s that. Through the preaching of the word, even today, sometimes unusual things happen. You can't manufacture them. Believe me, the preacher can't manufacture it. But there can be what the Apostle Paul called a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Mm. Well, so, I mean, we, we need to tell those stories, either like that they hear them in sermon illustrations or Sunday school or anecdotally. But if somebody's w- willing to read a book, you know, like read Read Arnold Dalimore's small biography of Spurgeon. And again, he's a total outlier. He was uniquely anointed. But just to know that things like that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then to say, hey, d- don't pray that we're going to get into this, you know, that we're going to go back to Puritan England or to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London or, you know, whatever you view as this golden time. But pray that an unusual work of the Holy Spirit would happen when the word is preached in our midst. 
Hmm. Amen. So thank you. It was good to see uh, somebody from Greenville, South Carolina. I do miss, um, you know, the cradle of Presbyterianism in South Carolina. I miss it. <laughs> Those Blue Ridge Mountains and that waterfall downtown. There's no place well, like come, it. Well, come see us. Tell, tell me that you, you know, you everybody kayaks up there. Have you taken, you know, your kayak or your canoe down the uh, Reedy Falls yet? I saw one guy do that. Was that you in that video? That, no, that was not me. I haven't done that. Uh, you yeah, are I'm not going to do that. But, but yeah, it's been done. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for being with us. Thoroughly enjoyed the time. Uh, Thank you I'm all. happy to be outnumbered. I'm the only one that hasn't served in RUF. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> but it was great having you on and great having all of our listeners as usual. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Keep it short. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word. Ineffectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith and the salvation. To salvation, the Spirit of God make it the reading, but especially the preaching of the word. Oh yeah! An effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Through faith and the salvation Through faith and the salvation